Let's just say I put him in a hole and threw away the hole. Welcome to the Suicide Squad cast. This is the DC Universe podcast where we discuss the DC Extended Universe movies and TV shows. Yep, we are all big fans of what DC Comics is doing on the big and the small screens, so we want to make sure that we talk about all of it. So thanks for joining us today. Let's get started. My name is Scott. And I am Tim, and we are the Suicide Squad cast. So Scott, man, what's been going on with you this week? Well, you know what? I totally got a little bummed yesterday yeah. when I hear that Prince died. I mean, I gotta be honest, I wasn't like a giant Prince fan, and I don't want to be one of those people who were like, oh, he died, so now I have to confess about what a fan I was. Yeah. No, but I, I still own the 1989 Batman soundtrack, <laughs> yeah. and I have to admit that since 1989, I've kind of played that sucker. I mean, Arms of Orion was like my like middle school, like emotional, hormone-filled, whenever I was sad or in love or something, I just, I played Arms of Orion, and I was totally, it was like emo before emo. It was ridiculous. <laughs> right. But I did buy this soundtrack on iTunes so I could have it on my phone. I was, and I was playing it in the car on the way home from work that day, just cause had to show some respect. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. No, I've never been a huge Prince fan either, but you know, when I heard the news, I was like, oh man, it's pretty sad because I mean, he seemed, seemed to be a pretty good guy for sure. And definitely extremely talented. And, you know, so I went kind of back and listened to all of his old songs and all that. And just to kind of reminisce a little bit about it and man, what a talent, but I gotta be honest, I am struggling to forgive him for bat dance. Why? <laughs> it's it, the video was weird. The, I'll, I'll give you that. The video was weird and I don't know it was just one of those things but no I mean but in all seriousness all is forgiven Prince you know it definitely is very sad news very sad news and just hope the best for his family uh, in this really difficult time so the other thing too though I mean just kind of moving on you know I've been a little bit out of tune with what's going on this week in the internet and the DC discussion going on out there but I, I gotta tell you I am getting quite tired of this conspiracy theory junk kind of going around through a very minority group of you know we'll say fans here that just think everybody in the world is against DC here. And I'm getting a little tired because this this gets blown up and over-focused on. And, uh, you know, I just want to kind of say, I mean, we, at least on this show, there is no mass conspiracy against DC. There are people that, you know, do not like what DC is doing, but they're not doing it in an organized manner. I think that's the difference. There are people who are out to get DC. That That is, I mean, I, I don't think that's a question. Yeah, sure. But I don't think, but it's not a, like you said, it's not an organizational effort. No, it's, no, definitely you know, not. But there are people out there with the whole why this movie is destined to fail even though it just started shooting a week ago or something like that you know there is that out there we're not saying that that doesn't exist no that definitely does exist I mean there are definitely people that are just that always see this as an opportunity to get a lot of clicks and and unfortunately that's what's happening right now but at this point I just have to tune this stuff out just I'm quite honestly pretty tired of it but <laughs> yeah yeah let's get on with the news because there was you know we're still moving in we got a lot of Suicide Squad this week which is kind of nice but there was a BVS article that Tim I know that you you've been kind of, you've been kind of punting on because you wanted to wait till we had a show where we could spend a lot of time on it. Yeah. So 
So why don't you why don't you tell us about your little pet project you've been working on? <laughs> okay, this was actually something that we had a chance to kind of do last week, but I didn't really have a chance to really digest the article because it was it was really large. There was a lot of stuff in there that I really wanted to kind of get through, and, and it was actually came from this is Pro Video Coalition, and it was an interview by Steve Holfish, and they interviewed the editor for Batman v Superman, David Brenner. And just to give you a little background, David Brenner actually was the editor for Batman v Superman, but he's also the editor for Man of Steel. And that was the first time he had actually ever worked with Zack Snyder. And so one of the issues that I've had, you know, we've said this before, I I enjoy Batman v Superman. I thought it was a lot of great stuff in that film, but there are definitely issues. And I thought one of the issues was the editing. And so I'm really interested in this because I really wanted to know, is it a script that wasn't really made for conventional blockbuster type films? Or was it just really poor editing? Is it Zack Snyder? I don't really know what it was, but there were just some things in the film that I definitely think could have been done a little bit better. Now, I want to make sure that I put my two cents in here going, I did not have the issues that Tim had. Also because I'm not trying to examine it that way, which is why I'm interested in this article because this is really like nuts and bolts kind of stuff that like I don't think about. Really, yeah, definitely it is. So I'm very interested to see what he had to say. Yeah, one of the first things David Brenner talked about in this interview is he really kind of talked about the challenges as an editor. Now, this is one of the things that I think a lot of moviegoers, you know, may not even really realize a lot of the nuts and bolts that go on behind the scenes here when you make a film. And basically he says, you know, when you are working on editing a film, there is always way too much material that's originally shot. And he says you have to try to work with all the stuff that the filmmakers give to them. And their job is to try to make this film play out pretty efficiently here. Well, see, this is what I do understand about editing, because they'll shoot the same scene like five different ways Mm -hmm. with actors making numerous choices so that in the editing room, they can figure out which are the choices when you combine them together, tell the story the best. Now that I, I, I know that much inside baseball to, to get that. Yeah. And so not only that, but they, they do a lot of different things with the filmography as well. They, they will make, you know, they'll take long shots. They'll do close up shots. They do different angles. And, and so they basically take tons of shots and then give it to the editor that daily has to kind of sort through these. And he has to start kind of piecing together the film as he gets this. And it becomes extremely difficult for an editor when a lot of these things are shot kind of in a non-sequential order. And so basically, you know, as filming is going on, the editor here, David Brenner, has to take these dailies, they call them. And the dailies are basically all the little segments of film that they capture throughout the day. And he's got to get these things in. His job is to kind of sort through it, watch the films, you know, just kind of get a sense for what he's got first. And then he has to kind of select the one that he's going to kind of put into his overall film as he's piecing everything together. And he says, look, as an editor, you are just really just working hard, trying to get the story and the characters actually work out, you know, based on what the filmmaker's giving you. And he says, you know, a lot of times they're really not able to do anything with the script. They just kind of have to get this as it comes in from the filmmaker. And he says, you know, he says sometimes he'll get a script early on before the the filmmakers even start shooting. And he says sometimes he's able to speak up. And if he feels real strongly about it, that he's able to kind of jump in and try to talk to the screenwriter or the director about it. And and basically, he tries to address things that he knows is going to be an issue as he tries to build up the story later on. But he says most of the time, you know, he feels like these are things that they can resolve after the fact. In fact, in Man of Steel, the same editor saw a lot of issues as they were filming. But when discussions with him and Zach, they realized that, you know, they'll be able to fix this up later. Which I know that happens a lot, too. I mean, I think I've heard it called like screenwriting by editing. Right. Where where you you do take care of those issues by throwing in a shot or throwing in something image wise or making cuts in the script just by cutting out a scene or cutting out a portion. Right. And, and this just comes from the fact that I listen to a lot of director commentaries. Like that's about as inside baseball as I get. I always listen to a commentary <laughs> track. I love my commentary tracks. Yeah. Well, he said basically so these dailies that they get every day. 
I guess early on in the filming, he would sit down with Zach every single day at lunchtime and they would go through the dailies real quick. But he says as things got real busy, he was no longer sitting down with Zach. And so Zach would basically watch his dailies on his own, basically on his iPad. And so that's kind of like the hectic process that an editor has. And he says, quite honestly, there were a bunch of jumbled storylines in Batman v Superman. And he says in the script, there were actually a lot more storylines than actually what you see in the movie. And he says the biggest issue that he has is trying to cut the film down to a reasonable length. Now, that probably addresses the fact that, you know, they said that the original cut was like four hours long. Right. And I do want to address that because I, I want to explain to people what this four hour cut actually is. And we'll get to that in a moment. Okay. And he says, you know, when you're building up from the beginning of the film, Bruce's true motivations with the white Portuguese, those actually had to be moved around quite a bit by the time they finished editing this. And he said, actually, in the original script for Batman v Superman, Lex actually showed up much later in the film. But they found out that when they were watching the movie, when they were kind of watching the initial cut on this, they realized they needed to bring him in a lot sooner. And he said, for one, he's a real important player, but actually they realized it was actually better to bring him in sooner because he had all this twisted cosmic energy that really boosted the film. And there was just so much for them to juggle. And he said there was actually a couple plot lines of a couple characters that they really had to just cut out entirely. And he says, you know, these people are actually in the movie, but they don't track them. And he says that was okay because in the end it was, it, they really needed to try to streamline the story. Now we talked about that extended cut, Scott. Now they actually had this four hour cut originally. And when we talk about a four hour cut, people need to understand this is not a complete cut of a film where you've got all the sound effects and all the proper editing and you've got all the, the soundtrack in there. None of that exists at this point. Basically, the four-hour cut is David Brenner's trying to string together all these different dailies and kind of put all these scenes that have been filmed kind of in sequential order. And from that four-hour cut, you know, it's it's going to be a mess. If you were to watch it, <laughs> there, things would be all over the map on this. And so his job is to really kind of figure out what's kind of working when you watch this whole movie together. What are the kind of themes that you need? What, what do you need to try to ex- explain the scenes and spell it out? And that's really what his job is. And so they actually start cutting. And when they get closer down to a three-hour cut, you know, they're, they're starting to get a good film here that they feel like, okay, this is kind of telling all the story you need. Now, three hours is still too long. So at that point, that's when they start making the really hard decisions. But basically to get from the four-hour to three-hour, they're cutting out things that are, you know, I think as hardcore fans, we'd probably find interesting. We'd like to see it, but they definitely would not feel like they flowed really well into a film. Yeah, I think those would be the ones that feel more like deleted scenes. Right, like deleted scenes. Like you, you can, because a lot of times when I look at a deleted scene, most of the time I look at a deleted scene and I go, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that, need, that, that needed to go. Yeah, it needed to go. Yeah, it needed to go. And what that now one thing I did notice about the notes you typed in here, because, you know, you're on a roll here. <laughs> but the thing about the three hour cut and people are like, oh, can I get the four hour cut? And it's like, well, no, because the four hour cut wasn't actually a polished film. No, the three hour cut we're going to get whenever they release it. I like his comment that it had the same. They refined the three hour cut to the same rhythm as the theatrical release, right? which basically sounds like the three-hour cut was a polished movie. Mm-hmm. But as we've discussed before, to get into theaters so that you can at least show it four times in one day, you had to cut out that extra half an hour. Yeah. So the the half hour that's going to show up in the extended cut still, you know, I think even Zack Snyder says, that still belongs in the movie. Right. I think what Brenner's saying is that extra hour that made it up to the four-hour cut, no, that hour stuff did not really belong in the movie. Yeah, right. And, you know, kind of going back to, I mean, how long was Watchmen? It was three hours and a half, right? When it was all said and done. Oh, uh, you talking about with the ultimate cut? The ultimate cut, right? It is three out. It's three and a half or three hours and forty five minutes. I yeah, know it's it, it's pretty long. It feels like four hours. And and here's the one thing. Here's my personal commentary. I love the ultimate cut. I didn't buy Watchmen until the ultimate cut came out. But it's hard to get through the ultimate cut in one sitting. It so you know everyone's like, oh yeah, I love four hours. It's like, have you watched the ultimate cut? Do you know what it's like to try to sit for that long? But I would say this about the ultimate cut too, Watchmen. Now I think it does feel like a complete 
complete movie. It's hard to sit in one sitting and go through all of it. But I think everything that's there in that ultimate cut feels like it belongs, you know, if you look at the whole story. Well, because it, it was in the graphic novel. I mean, that is the most accurate adaptation I've ever seen of a graphic novel to screen. But the, when we talk about this four-hour cut for Batman v Superman, that extra hour probably does not belong there. It would not feel right. It would feel like, it would feel a lot more out of order than than I think what some people would, you know, would have said that the two and a half hour cut felt like. So I think in the end, you know, the editor and Zack Snyder, they kind of settled in on a three hour cut and they feel like this tells a nice complete story, but they simply just had to cut it down. They can't, they can't go into, you know, a big blockbuster film at three hours. You know, you're just, you know, generally not going to be able to do that. <laughs> so, so anyway, I did want to just kind of touch on that because I thought that was a lot of the, the stuff kind of behind the scenes, kind of showing what's going on here. You know, when we talk about what the editor's role is and the editor role is really to kind of, you know, he works with like, say, Zack Snyder on this, but he also has to kind of be independent of Zack Snyder. And he has to kind of stand back as a non-filmmaker, you know, that has his, you know, heart and soul kind of poured into what they're filming on the set and all that. He has to kind of look back and say, look, does this make sense or does it not? And the one thing I liked in here that Brenner actually said is, you know, he always goes back to something that Roland Emmerich, the director said, and he kind of taught him, he goes, you know, when you go from one scene to another, you have to kind of think of terms of cause and effect. And he says, you know, what Roland tried to do is he used to like try to stick with characters and their storylines. And, you know, when it was time for their storyline to kind of like move on and cut off, you have to find out what the cause is, what causes that storyline to change to another storyline. And then what's the effect? And he says those transitions, he thought, made it feel like there was a real reason that you're cutting from the one thing to the next thing. You have to find a cause and effect. And so when I was actually kind of reading this, I kind of felt like maybe that's what he was actually saying, that this is maybe something he might have struggled with, with Zack Snyder, because this script is definitely not a conventional type of story. And I think this editor was struggling with how do you really make these transitions? Because there's a lot of transitions, not just from one storyline to another, but you kind of go back and forth in time. And I, I think that made his job extremely difficult. Well, I think something, you know, that's something that I wanted to point out was, you know, so have you been listening to, uh, you know, Sam Otten's uh, Justice League Universe podcast where he's kind of been going scene through scene through uh, Batman v Superman? Yeah, um, I've listened to it up until about a week ago and I haven't been able to catch up on the last one or two episodes that he did. Well, I think this, something like this, I think really kind of maybe will address some of these questions because something that he talks about as he moves from episode to episode is, is kind of addressing how one scene does lead into the other and connects. So I think he kind of even sort of like is in tune with what Brenner was saying. I'll be interested to know like when it gets to those things that maybe like you had the problems with the transition, I'll be very interested to hear what Sam thinks. Like, does he notice the same transitional issue or not since he is breaking it down so finitely? Um, now, one thing I did want to say about Brenner is that he won an Oscar, so the man knows what he's doing. Yeah, we'll have to see on that. So I mean, one last thing I want to say about this, the great article, by the way, if you want to see this and you really get a lot of stuff in here about what behind the scenes, like what an editor actually has to do. There's, there's a lot more than what we talked about here. So I would definitely go check out this article at Pro Video Coalition. And if you just search for it and look for David Brenner, you should be able to find it. Now, one last thing I'll say on this. Now, David Brenner is actually also the editor, Justice League Part 1. And he said right now that he's busy kind of getting prepared for Justice League Part 1. And he says right now he really can't talk to Zach because Zach is so busy prepping over in London. And he said, he said, look, I'm the I'm the last guy that Zach wants to talk to right now. <laughs> and he says, look, I have some questions about the script because I'll, but I'll have to wait till I go to London, which he's actually probably there right now. And uh, he says when he gets there, he'll work it out and try to figure it out with Zach. Anyway, just pretty interesting job. I mean, I, I can just imagine what they have to do. I mean, you kind of have to be this independent person, you know, standing back looking at what the filmmaker's trying to do and, and make sure it kind of makes sense. Yeah, well, I, I looked at the article and there's a lot more there than what we talked about because you really had to trim it down for us to talk about <laughs> yeah. it. So I would definitely say there's a lot more nuggets in there if you're if, if you're 
you're that, if, if you're that kind of like film nerd, this is definitely the kind of article you want to read. Yep, definitely. Now, once again, as promised, let's move on to some Suicide Squad news. Uh, let's start off with the man himself, Mr. David Ayer. Yeah. Uh, he had an interview with comicbook.com. This one was written by uh, Brandon Davis. It was an interview that was done on the red carpet at CinemaCon in Las Vegas. And he had some interesting things to say. He, yeah. he, he addressed the movie and he addressed uh, directing Jared Leto as the Joker. Oh, uh, start off with the movie comments first. Utter madness. I think we can all believe that at this point. Yeah. Uh, lots of soul. It's fun. It's funny. There is humor, guys. It's going to be fun. David Ayer says so. <laughs> uh, crazy moments. A journey that these characters take together. And they start off separate. And then they grow together as a family. And they discover that they can do anything. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, like, how much sarcasm was dripping off of David Ayer's voice when he <laughs> said this? Or how, uh, like, genuine was he being? Because I was like, I don't want them together as a family. I want them to be ready to kill each other. I don't know what you're talking about, David. Yeah, I think there'll still be that. <laughs> I think there'll still be that, too. But I think, I think if anything, this really just kind of comments on how the cast came together, to be right. honest with you. Well, and I think um, if you look at what David Ayer did, his prepping his cast, he basically, David's very famous for getting people together for, you know, several weeks ahead of time and kind of forcing them to kind of bond together. And so he definitely did that with this cast. Now, interestingly enough, he did not have Jared Leto as part of that group. Yes, because he actually says, moving on, that uh, Leto didn't make his job easy, <laughs> that it's tough because, as he put it, the Joker's going to do what the Joker's going to do. <laughs> and I like, I really kind of liked that, you know, and then he, you can also tell an air that he's respectful of the fact that the Joker's got 75 years worth of history and that it was, he thought it was a scary job to try to tackle it. And of course he, you know, as everyone seems to do, they brag on Jared Leto about how he just killed it. Uh, there's another interview uh, later on where David Ayer talks about that legacy, but we'll we'll save that because I think you want to talk a little bit about uh, what Violet Davis had to say about Jared Leto. Oh yeah, this this was a lot of good fun. Now now we know Joker, or at least uh, Joker, I called him Joker. We know Jared Leto was going a little bit nuts where he was sending all kinds of crazy gifts. And if you want to hear what some of those are, just listen to our last episode. Now apparently he never really directly sent any of these crazy gifts to Viola Davis. And I find that pretty interesting because I don't know if it's out of a, a sign of respect or if it was because, you know, she was not his target because, you know, she's not directly part of the crew of Suicide Squad. But, you know, she said that she did not receive personally any gifts from Jared Leto. But she said if she would have, she would have actually sicked her husband on him. And because I guess when college, he was actually known as the headache ball when he played football. I thought that was pretty interesting. So I don't know. What, what do you think the significance was that he never really sent her anything? I think it's because he fears for his life. I don't know what you're thinking. <laughs> she's freaking the wall. I mean, you don't mess with the wall. Yes, I thought that was pretty entertaining, but we got to actually talk about this big article. Now, we're actually probably a week behind in this. This actually showed up last week, but we like we did not have a, a chance to digest it before we recorded. But well, not only just digest it, but just it's a giant article. I mean, like this is the episode of giant articles today, folks. It is. Yeah. But this was a great one. And this was a, a really thoughtful interview with Jared Leto, really kind of talking about his role as Joker. And uh, I, I definitely want to touch on a lot of this. So the article kind of opens up and it's a little quote from David Ayer really talking about Joker's look. And he says, look, the Joker has a ton of different looks. And in the end, it was really just built on a bunch of the looks throughout the history of DC Comics. Now, did we discuss that last week? Yeah, we've seen some of the, there's a lot of people that put together different pictures showing all the different looks of Joker and all that. So, the, but those are really great. So I love that. It's just, it's kind of embracing the history and you definitely have seen it so far in this film. Well, I think what's interesting is though, is that when those people did those memes and they were like, oh, here's Alex Ross and here's Frank Miller and here's, you know, Tony S. Daniel and yeah. here's uh, Greg Capullo. And I like the fact 
like this quote made me go, oh, that wasn't on accident. They 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 literally did that on purpose. Right. It's like they knew what they were doing when they mishmashed all these different Joker looks into uh, the film. Yeah. Well, and he says, but really, they wanted to kind of bring in a new flair and a flavor because they wanted to make him feel like a modern day gangster. And he says, well, it's because he's always been a gangster. Well, it's true. Yeah, definitely true. Now, Leto also talked about taking on the Joker. And and once again, I, I, he says it. I believe it. And But it's just that I feel like it, we hear it over and over again. But Leto talked about how it was so difficult or risky for him to take on the role just because of the legacy. And, and Tim, you've talked about this. You know, right. that's the one thing DC characters have working for them or against them, depending on your perspective, that there have been so many varied portrayals of all these characters. So thinking about Leto, he's going in with Cesar Romero, Jack Nicholson, Heath Ledger, Mark Hamill's voice portrayal. I mean, he's got, there are expectations of the Joker on film riding onto him. And, And now he has to go and try to do something completely new. And his idea was he loved the opportunity and he was grateful because this is a Joker for a new generation. I mean, Dark Knight was not quite 10 years ago, but what, eight years ago, 2008 was Dark Knight. So you do have, you know, in eight years, you can't have another generation who is ready for another Joker. Right. And Jared Leto said, and I'm this generation's Joker. Yeah. Well, and he said, you know, they knew for sure that they had to kind of strike new ground with this. And he says, there's been all this great work that all these different actors have done. And in the past, he says, but that just really told them that they definitely had to go in a different direction. And, you know, and he says, when you know these all these different directions that they've taken Joker in the past, just knowing that they know that you can't go any of those ways. So then it kind of pushes you off in a different direction. And he says, really, in the end, you have to kind of head this way. But the thing that Leto said he loved most about the Joker, he goes, he's fantastic because there are no rules. The Joker basically operates from instinct. I like that. It kind of goes back to something that has, he's a force of nature. Right. You know, Jared Leto calls it instinct. You know, Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight was more like anarchy. And that just the idea that there is, there's no logic there. Mm -hmm. There's just him being. And that's what makes him such a scary character. That's what makes him such an intriguing villain because you have no flipping clue where he's going. (laughs) Right. Because it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Well, the other part I liked about this is he revealed that he really got a ton of trust from David Ayer on this to really go in and and really help develop this Joker. And he said Ayer trusted him that he was going to go out and go and experiment, explore the Joker, and really come back with something that was going to allow him to really kind of continue some additional collaboration in formulating the Joker with David Ayer. And he said it was so nice to have that kind of trust in him from David. And so that really gave him an opportunity to just really get to let loose. And it, it really encouraged Leto even further to just continue and just dig deeper into, you know, what this Joker was going to be. That says so much about David Ayer. It does. That, yeah. I mean, I mean, as a former actor, I mean, that kind of relationship between an actor and a director. Now, I've never been a film actor. I was always a stage one. But that the fact that he was able to go like David Ayer was not dictating to Leto where he wanted him to go. It mm-hmm. was basically, son, go out there, come back, impress me. Yeah, that's the sense I get from this article. How about you? Yeah, I definitely got that as well. And, and actually, that's just very consistent with everything we've heard about David Ayer. Just not just with this film, but, you know, some of the other films that we've heard. I mean, he definitely, I, I love his approach. We, you know, we talk about the method acting with Jared Leto. I like this kind of methodology that David Ayer uses to really kind of just kind of like bring out the best in not only his cast amongst each other and working together, but just individuals like this. Well, the, in method acting, I mean, the idea is that it has to come from the actor. Yeah. The actor has to generate it within the, within 
in themselves. Mm -hmm. And that if you don't do that, then it's not natural. It's not organic. And method acting tends to be very, sometimes overly organic in its process. Mm -hmm. And Leto, he goes into talking about his development of the Joker. And he says that, you know, he became a real person. And then I love it. I don't know if person is the right word. (laughs) And I like that. But, you know, he did say he started, his starting point was the comics. Mm -hmm. And once again, that's the one thing about a lot of these DC guys that I've been hearing a lot of is that they did dive in and read the material. And Leto was no exception to that. But then he said at some point he just had to cut himself off because the character has been reinterpreted and redefined over and over and over again. It's not like he was going to find that definitive version of the Joker that then he was going to draw from to portray. Mm -hmm. He realized that everyone recreates the Joker for themselves. And so he then learned, then that's what I'm going to have to do because I can look at the source material, but there's as many versions of him in the source material as you could find depictions of him on film. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then we, he went on to talk about what he actually did to prepare himself. And he said, look, you know, there were like a ton of things. And he said, look, it's probably better that I do not get into it. (laughs) He says, but he described, you know, that really the Joker for the Joker, violence is a symphony. And he said, this is somebody who would get extreme reward from all these different kinds of acts of violence and manipulation. And uh, he kind of described this one thing. And and when he, he, when he said this, I was like, you know, does Joker sing in this film? Because he says, there are these songs that he sings and it's very in tune with what makes people tick. So I couldn't really tell exactly what Leto was saying there, but wouldn't that be something if like, you know, we hear something like that from Joker in the film? That would be creepy. Yeah. <laughs> um, Real creepy. You know what it were, you know what reminds me of actually? The Arkham games. Did, I mean, do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, the, like the first one or which one was it the? Well, the, the, it's in, it's in Arkham City and in Arkham Knight, but like Arkham City has got that thing where like at the end credits, you like, you're listening to your voicemail and Joker's like singing a song to Batman. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then it, and then that's that same idea repeats itself in spoilish ways in Arkham Knight. And I, once again, I mean, I don't know if he knows that, but it's still kind of a weird serendipity that this all seems to be connecting t- in my head. Yeah. Yeah. This that's pretty weird. And I wouldn't be the least bit surprised because it seems like the filmmakers in multiple films here are taking advantage of like a lot of the great stuff that they've done in the actual video games. So, but to get the, so Leto actually met with experts, doctors, and psychiatrists that were dealing with psychopaths. And he says, these are people that actually dealt with other people that had committed these really horrendous crimes. And then he says that he actually spent time with those people themselves, people who have been institutionalized for great periods of time. And he says, when you take on a role, really any kind of role, you really need to be kind of part detective and part writer. And Leto said that was really his favorite time in this whole process of trying to develop the Joker was the discovering and the uncovering in this and really trying to build up that character. Okay, that, that, that I'm going to be, I'm going to stop you right there, Tim. That that kind of creeps me out <laughs> just, just a little bit. I'm like, I'm like, Jared, you went a little too far, sir. <laughs> you went a little too far. Do you think we'll ever find out, like, I mean, if there was anybody of any significance that he met with? That That is definitely creepy, though. Oh, that's definitely creepy. You know what? You know what? That needs to be a feature right on the DVD Blu-ray. Oh, I'm sorry. Definitely. That, that, that would be a featurette that would totally be, you know how sometimes like when you buy a Blu-ray, you're looking at the back and you see that one featurette that goes sold. Like I will buy this just to see that. This would be one of those. But I, I have a feeling that whatever Jared Leto did, he kind of did it entirely on his own. Like there's probably no other people there 
So whatever he did, it was completely off the radar. No, I agree with you, but wouldn't it be great? Great. <laughs> now, okay, he said that it was very challenging to stay in character for the entire shoot, which once again just goes to the, oh God, knock it off with the method acting. I mean, honestly, <laughs> you, you have to be in character the entire time. Oh, I'm glad he was, though. I, I just, I don't know. It's just, it's just the cynic in me that goes, really, this sounds really ridiculous, but, you know, whatever floats your boat. And, you know, he said that he, um, I know when he says, when the, when this interview says that he has a great sense of humor, depending on who you ask, was they saying that Jared Leto has a great sense of humor or that the Joker has a great sense of humor? I wasn't really sure who Jared was talking. Jared, who are you? Mm-hmm. Which, which, which he are you he? referring to? Yeah. Well, and then he said he really, he felt like there was a great need to stay committed to this character. And so really, he said, I have to be as committed as possible. I had to be committed actually beyond belief, to quote him. And, you know, he did what he needed to do to really deliver what he thought was the best performance that he possibly could. And he said, really, actually, in the end, there's a lot on the line, but he wants to make sure he does justice for all the work that's been done before. And he says, this is actually immersive. It's not some kind of part-time job. He said, it literally takes over your life. And he says, for him, that's what he needed to do. And he says, other people could just show up and be genius with their performances. But, you know, he's really kind of talking about, this is what Jared Leto needs to do so that he can deliver the performance that he does. And uh, he said, well, you know, we had a great time with it. We had a good time with it. And, you know, he thinks this is actually what was needed for him. You no, know, And then he talked about introducing himself to his castmates, which I think goes into the um, interesting gifts that we have been discussing and that his mentality was Joker is all about the grand gesture. And so he had to make grand gestures to all of his castmates to introduce himself and that that was really important and that it was fun. Really, Jared? <laughs> really? Dead pigs? Yeah. Um, other unmentionables? That's fun. Whatever you say. Well, when you said grand gesture, I actually kind of read that a different way. I, I kind of thought it was just a more animation with his arms and his body language and all that. Because I thought the the gestures he was doing in that club scene in the last trailer, where I think he's talking to, uh, I think he's talking to Common there. I thought some of the, the way he kind of moved and his moved his arm and kind of moved his head off to the side. I loved the gestures that he did there. Oh, no, no, I'm, I'm not denying that. I mean, yeah. his his movements. And that's always been the something with the Joker is just how does he how does he move? And that that Blitz trailer really sold me, especially on that. Are you sweet talking me? Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know that that and, and he's almost moving like a snake almost. Right. You know, yeah. You know, like uh, the Jungle Book, you know, that mm-hmm. sort of I'm moving side to side. And it's like, are you watching me? Because you never know when I'm going to strike kind of thing. <laughs> well, and then he talked about how, you know, his involvement in actually creating the, the physical look of Joker. And uh, he said, you know, these are all the different kind of things that he actually brought to the table and David brought his things to the table and he said in the end it was really a mashup of both of their sick and twisted minds. <laughs> I think David would agree yes, with that. Yes sir. I agree with that <laughs> at this point. These are some crazy people. Yeah, definitely, which I like. <laughs> I want I want I want crazy people acting out the Joker and I want I want a crazy person directing Suicide Squad. Interesting here that he said that David Ayer was very specific with the tattoos. That the yeah. tattoos were like those were hand picked by Ayer almost. Mm-hmm. At least that's what I that's my interpretation from this article. And that he also says, who knows what will end up in the final film? That was interesting. He was talking about the tattoos there. Yeah, he was. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know. Like, are there tattoos that maybe we don't, like, they're, they're, they're there, but we just, maybe we, we may or may not get, like, a really clear shot of them? Yeah, I mean, maybe he's referring to something, like, on his back or something, or his arm. You know, we know on his arm he's got the Robin with the arrow through it. Right. And he's got, like, the smile across his abs and, you know, damage on his forehead. Yeah. Who knows what's on his back? Because that, that always just reminds me of, you know, the joke 
Joker from All Star Batman and Robin, who like had right. a giant dragon tattoo on mm-hmm. his back. Yeah, I'm very. I always wondered if the tattoos were kind of inspired by that interpretation of the Joker, and I'm so I'm very interested to see what what is on his back because we've never seen his back before. No, we haven't. So maybe it's one of the the surprises he had for us. Ooh, but I I love kind of how he ended this. He says, you know, the 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 cast and the crew. They goes, they must have thought I was effing crazy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, I, I think yes, so. Yes, yes, I think so, Jared. Thank you. You you hit the nail on the head. Very perceptive, Jared. Uh, he said every time he walked on a set, he saw a ton of smiles, and you know he was so glad to have, or they were so glad to have Smiley back, and that it was really touching and a nice thing that they got a sense of joy out of whatever was happening. Okay, well at least at least they're okay now. They're they're cool now. <laughs> well, and and not to be outdone in his uh, kind of like Joker persona, he ended this interview. He says, you know, he was happy to make everyone smile, even if he had to cut their tongues out. <laughs> so moving on to somebody less crazy. Tell us about I Joel know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the straight man of this movie, apparently. Uh, this was another interview at the red carpet of CinemaCon, just like the David Ayer interview yeah. we mentioned earlier. And he talked about how they had a ball in the movie and that from the get go, everyone just seemed to get along with David Ayer. And once again, talking about how Ayer just creates this atmosphere with his actors and that I love this. It was a love fest for five whole months. It was tough, but it was a love fest. <laughs> yeah. Like, what, what do you what do you mean? What do you mean by a love fest? Is this a different kind of movie? I don't know. Yeah. Um, and then he talked about what he what Joel Kinnaman himself was looking forward to seeing. And it was that there was so much going on in the movie. And I think what he's getting at is he just wants to see how it all comes together. Yeah, you got to remember a lot of these guys when they're on the set, they never really see the whole story and they don't really see the dailies like, you know, the directors and the filmmakers do and the editors. But, you know, these guys and they, when finally when they finally see the film, they're kind of seeing it a lot like we are. You know, they're seeing things that they hadn't seen because, I mean, you know, Joel Kimmins not going to be on there on every aspect of the set. He's not going to be there for every scene. So there's there's a ton of things that these guys will never see until they actually see the film. And that's got to be, you know, kind of fun. You know, they have their own little part of the world. And, and you know, who knows what the director and the filmmakers are doing outside of that, you know, whatever kind of changes they may make on the fly. And so, yeah, it's 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 fun to see that these guys are, you know, just as anticipating the film as as everyone else. Joel went on to comment about Jared Leto because everyone seems compelled to comment about working with Jared Leto. <laughs> And he said that, you know, we were a family. Leto was on the outside. <laughs> yep. And he said that, you know, he had big shoes to fill, but he sure as hell filled them. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. hey. And then, of course, you got to love it when they was like, so Suicide Squad got a sequel coming out or something. And all Joel said, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> so maybe he knows. You know, I mean, he probably knows. I mean, from the at least from the script, I mean, he knows how this thing ends, if that's how it eventually gets, you know, edited up together. But yeah, it'll be interesting. Now, kind of moving on. Th- th- those were a couple of great interviews. Now, we actually got a little bit of one woman news here. So filming is continuing and this time and it's a big open area in Matera, Italy. And uh, if you go to like movie news, they actually posted a video that they found from an Italian broadcast. And it, this is pretty cool. Now it, it's it's a it looks like a market scene and um, you know, it's just got all women around. So it, it's presumably Themyscira. It was I found it really interesting. It wasn't like this clean, pristine type of set we always see, or at least not set, but maybe like this where it's always kind of depicted Themyscira being completely, um, you know, a immaculate and all that. And it looked very much, you know, kind of like an old age kind of market scene. And uh, what I found was a little interesting. They showed this little scene where this this little girl was running. And it was kind of rumored that there was this young actress uh, that was going to be playing a young Diana. And I think that's actually what we saw here. Okay. Anyway, it's just, uh, you know, if you if you like to see a lot of the stuff kind of behind the scenes, just, you know, seek some of the stuff out, look for Wonder Woman behind the scenes, you know, pics and all that. And it's, it's a lot of fun just really kind of seeing a movie come together. And, you know, to me, there's nothing really giant organically spoilish here at 
it. So it's, but it's, uh, it's going to be fun to see this when we actually see the film itself, like how this all, you know, looks when you see it all processed and on the big screen. Well, moving on to some Justice League news, because I was actually reading this article last Sunday when our last episode dropped, but there was an interview done by Collider, uh, written by Christina Radish, that was J.K. Simmons talking about his preparation for playing Commissioner Gordon. And I ate, I ate this up like, like ice cream because I love me some J.K. Simmons. I've Law and Order, Spider-Man, you know, been there a long time fan. And I love listening to this man talk because he is so respectful whenever he speaks. I mean, go back and listen to his Oscar speech from Whiplash. That was a fantastic speech. But he talked about how uh, Christina asked how he was going to prepare for the role. First thing out of the gate, he says, well, to read the comics. Yes, absolutely. I'm still a couple of months out from doing that and I have two other films before then, so I haven't gotten started on that. But obviously saying, oh, I'm going to read me some comics. And I love this because um, our buddies Jason and Dave over at DC on screen, they kind of had a little discussion about okay, if you had to send a care package to J.K. Simmons, what comics would you send him to read? So, Tim, I want to take a little bit of a tangent. If you could send one book to J.K. Simmons for Gordon for research, what would you send? Oh, I mean, I would probably send No Man's Land. If I had to pick anything, that's probably what I would pick right now. Because there's some phenomenal moments in that. Dude, Jason said the exact same thing. Did he? Okay. Yes, he did. Okay. Okay. Uh, Do Batman Year One as well. Oh, you took no, you got one. You took mine. <laughs> I was going to say year one. Yeah, okay. Oh, well, what else you got? <laughs> dang it. I was going to say year one. I mean, that was no, the problem. I'm angry with you now. That was mine since you took no man's land. Well, yeah. I mean, those are, those are the ones when I think of, you know, Commissioner Gordon, those are the ones that always stand out to me, especially the one scene where it was, you know, Batman decided he wanted to kind of reveal who he was. And, you know, Gordon just turned around. And he says, look, I don't want to know. No, the, what I love, the, I also love the scene in, in year one where it's like, can't see a thing without my glasses. <laughs> That's right. I, I forgot about that. That's a great That's scene. That's a great scene. Yeah. Um, okay. Okay. I got one though. If I if I have to pick something else, I would say go with Jeff Johns' uh, Batman Earth One. Okay. There was a That's really a good, good depiction of Gordon, especially, I mean, really volume one and volume two, but seeing sort of volume one where Gordon is the beat down cop and what happens over the course of Earth One, volume one, I would also recommend that as well. Okay. Never mind. So I was curious. Jason and Dave had fun with that. So I just thought we could too. So, and then he also talked about how there's been so many wonderful actors to play Gordon. And he said, I've seen them all. I watched them in theaters when they came out. But one thing that I'm definitely not going to do is I'm never going to go back and watch them again because I'm going to have to create my own, uh, my own interpretation of the character. He, he kind of related to doing musical theater because I don't know if you know, J.K. Simmons can sing. Mm-hmm. Yes, and he, he talked about how it's like, if you're going to do a musical, you don't go and listen to the cast album. Right. You know, you, you have to go in fresh. And so that was sort of, he even name dropped Gary Oldman and Pat Hingle. Okay. And it's like, they've done some respectable stuff, but what I'm going to do is not going to be what they did. Mm-hmm. And I had a cool little Twitter conversation with one of our listeners who said, I was impressed he could name drop Pat Hingle. <laughs> and I had to say, the man knows his stuff. Yeah. That's all I'm going to say. Well, he's in the community. I mean, they should know. Yeah. And then the last thing he had to deal with was that they were asking about, you know, are comparisons going to be made between his portrayal of J. Jones 
Jonah Jameson and Commissioner Gordon. And and uh, J.K. Simmons' reaction was, well, except for the haircut and maybe some of the facial hair, there's not really similarities. You know, he said he read a lot of Spider-Man comic books going into the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies, mm-hmm. which you could tell because the yeah. man was J.K. Jameson. He yeah. nailed it. And he says, but the difference is, is that Gordon seems so much uh, more impactful in the DC universe. Mm-hmm. And so he thinks that that's really going to be a difference because Gordon is older. He relates to the to the superhero that he's kind of connected with and that he has a much stronger connection to the universe than, say, someone like J. Joma Jameson does. And I just thought that was bravo, bravo, JK, yeah. bravo. I loved that, that respect for Gordon as a character. Right. Well, so I loved a lot of things he said there. And and I got to tell you, I am I am so happy to hear these actors that come in to roles where we've had, you know, two or three previous interpretations of the of the same character. I love the idea that they are not trying to wrap themselves around what somebody else did with that character. I think that keeps everything fresh. When you get somebody come in and gives a new interpretation, I think it, it, it opens it up to just having some new fantastic kind of interpretation that we've never seen. And, you know, so I'm hopeful for the, you know, seeing that with uh, Gordon here. I'm hopeful for like with Joker and, you know, just so many other characters. I, I definitely like that. I, I'm not one of these kind of fans that feels like, well, that's not that's not the same kind of Joker that we had from the previous movie. It's going to be so different, so I'm not going to like it. I, I think we need to embrace it that, you know, we get these different interpretations. Uh, speaking of other actors from Spider-Man, mm-hmm. uh, we got some news this week. And yeah. I want to once again, shout out to our Twitter followers for, you know, you know, giving us the heads up. Yeah. But the Hollywood Reporter had an exclusive where they announced that Willem Dafoe mm-hmm. will be appearing in Justice League Part 1 and Part 2. But he's in a mystery role. Yeah. We have it is being shrouded in secrecy who he is playing. All I have to say is this, Tim. We are who we choose to be. So choose. Nice. I'm sorry. I had to. <laughs> Very good. Now, when I first got this news, I, I hadn't had a chance to read the article. I was actually at work and somebody had asked me, you know, who do they think is going to play? And I'm like, well, I didn't know any of the details. And uh, I had suggested to Saad. Now, you told me, Scott, that they've actually indicated that he's going to be a good guy, right? Yeah, that's what this Hollywood that's what this Hollywood Reporter article said. So I was watching that Twitter conversation and I was just going, Tim, 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 Tim. Well, that's that's I, that's what it happens when you just comment without knowing the full details. So. I know. So I, if he has to be one of the good guys, they now they never said that he was a hero or that he was going to be a superhero. They just said he was going to be one of the good guys. Mm-hmm. So my question is, do you think he's going to be an actual DC character, or are we going to have like another like Senator Finch kind of character where they, they've created something original for the film? Yeah, you know, I think you know you always kind of have the tendency when you hear about an actor, you're like, oh, okay, which hero is he going to play? In in reality, I mean, that's really not the case. I mean, they could be any number of characters. So I really don't know, to be honest with you. I almost think he almost has to be an actual comic book character if he's appearing in both part one and part two. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of have this hope that, you know, we get something along with the new gods. And I would really like the idea of him playing somebody like High Father or something like that. You know, if he's one of the so-called good guys. Ooh, what about Orion? Uh, you know, I think he might be might be a little too old to play Orion. I, w- I was wondering about that. I, I didn't know how that would play out. Or ooh, what about 
Metron. Well, see, that's uh, I had mentioned that to somebody as well. That uh, actually, that was the first person I had mentioned that I thought he was playing Metron, and then later on it came back, or somebody said Desaad, and that's where I'm like, oh, that would be cool. No, that would be. Yeah, no, I, I'm not. I'm not done. I love Willem Dafoe. Yeah. I mean, Boondock Saints is one of my favorite movies of all time, right, and I right. love great, him in that movie. Great. Which, by the way, if if you are of an age and you can watch an R-rated movie and you have not seen Boondock Saints, <laughs> you need to you need to treat yourself to that heap and helping of profanity and violence because it is wonderful. Yeah, that was a movie that took how many years to come out after it was filmed? I mean, it was it was on the shelf for quite a long time. It was on the shelf for a long time and it finally came out in like 99, yeah. I think was when it released. Oh, wow. So yeah, uh, you know, pretty much at this point in time, anyone, any kind of role you want to put him in, I think is going to be great because, I mean, he's such a he's such a great dynamic actor. You know, it'll just be fun to see him in this film. Well, we actually need to move on to Aquaman right now. Now, director James Wan said he plans to blow people away. Now, this was from a quick conversation that he had with MTV News. Uh, Crystal Bell actually had reported on this. And James said that, you know, as we know, Aquaman is somewhat the butt of a joke in a superhero world. But he actually thought that there's actually something pretty cool about that. He loves the idea of the underdog. And he said, you know, coming in and taking on this underdog character gives him a chance to really completely blow people's expectations away. But I don't want to be Aquaman. (laughs) That's right. And, uh, you know, and, and I always think of this thing you see online. You always see that uh, the picture of Aquaman riding on like uh, a flying the fish sea, or seahorse or a seahorse or, and all that. So I love that. Just keep throwing those out there because Momo is going to come in here and just blow everyone away. I'm looking for the big ass shark from like the New 52 Justice League, like number three, when that sucker showed up. Oh right, right. Oh yeah, that's the moment I want. <laughs> well, and he says, "Look, you know, you thought Aquaman was going to be a wimpy character, and he goes, no, 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 no. This is going to be cool." And he says he did acknowledge that Justice League actually happens before his film. And he says, you know, you need to be respectful of that. Uh, But, you know, in a lot of ways, it's really going to be a continuation of that story. But there are going to be origin elements in it as well. And he says that is a story that he's real excited to tell. Now, I like the idea of having origin stories for certain characters, Uh, one of them being Wonder Woman and Aquaman's another one. I would love to see an origin story with Aquaman. Yeah, I think Aquaman is one that you need an origin story because people don't people don't know the origin. They don't like like Batman v Superman. We could get away with Batman. Man's origin being the opening credit sequence. Yeah. And moving on. Right, definitely. Yeah, I mean, you can get away with that nowadays. And, and the same thing with Flash. I think Flash has had a couple great TV followings right now that you probably really don't need to do an origin story anymore. You know, I mean, if you want to do it, just make it very quick. It doesn't need to be like, you know, Batman Begins, which I thought was the the greatest origin story I've seen of a comic book film. Uh, but, uh, you know. Well, with Flash, I mean, what are you going to say? I got struck by lightning. Now I run fast. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really, his origin story can be as simple as that. <laughs> right, right. And, and that's no disrespect to Flash. I love me some Flash. Right. But I'm saying his origin story is I got struck by lightning and now I run fast. Right, right. <laughs> so anyway, just a little bit of news. So it looks like things are starting to kind of gel and move forward a little bit here. Now we know, you know, James Wan is finishing up Conjuring 2 and he said, you know, he's going to wait till he kind of finished up that film and then he's going to be moving on to Aquaman. And I think that's actually his next film, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay. Well, now talking about other people who get struck by lightning. Shazam! Shazam! Okay. I love The Rock. I got to <laughs> tell you, Dwayne Johnson is so much fun. He's fun. He needs just his be permanently on the PR team. Yes, yes, he does. Because, you know, we I don't know, did we hint at it or did we talk about the fact that he was on the MTV Movie Awards wearing a Black Adam t-shirt? We either talked about it very quickly or, you know, we maybe we didn't didn't even talk about it, but I love that part, though. Oh, I mean, and then, of course, he had the whole thing where he just, it was, no one reacted to it because he just sort of slipped it in there where he was like, Black Adam is coming. Yeah. And we're all like, yes! Well, apparently on Twitter, because the man is very active on Twitter, and I follow him on Twitter because he's fun, mm-hmm. uh, he, someone asked him about whether, you know, what's the possibility
possibility of there being like a Black Adam Superman showdown. Mm-hmm. And they referenced the uh, animated short that was released direct to video, the Superman Shazam, the return of Black Adam. Mm-hmm. And Rock responded with this tweet. And I quote, won't happen in the first movie, but nothing would make me happier. He's got it coming. <laughs> Hashtag Black Adam versus Superman. Hashtag Shazam. You know, uh, poor Henry Cavill says Superman. Everybody's just gunning for him. <laughs> I guess that's what happens when you're kind of the top dog, you know, power-wise. Oh, yeah, yeah, People got to knock you down. They got to try you know. to knock you down, you know. Exactly. Well, and then uh, there was just a little bit of word about uh, this guy actually came from Alberto Gonzalez, uh, Heroic Hollywood, on Heroic Insider. And, you know, he says, oh, we got this big update on Shazam movie. Well, I mean, the update is basically Warner Brothers is waiting on a script. And then, as you know, as soon as they get a script, they'll start to look for a director. So, basically, not much is really happening at this point. <laughs> do we do we know who's writing the script? Um, That, oh, you know what? I heard a name and. For the life of me, I cannot remember who, but... So obviously uh, it wasn't a name that, like, stuck with you? Uh, not really. I, I, oh, you know, actually, I take that back. The name I heard was somebody who had written a, a previous script to Shazam. Now, oh, I don't okay. know if that's if that's the person, if that's the same person that's writing the new script, or if they're if they're just kind of doing a rewrite of, of that one script that was written. I, I don't know. But at any rate, I mean, I, I guess it's not surprising that nothing's happening yet, because you got to remember, this is still, this is like four films later after Suicide Squad, so we still have a ways to go yet. Yeah, so, so it's not like don't freak out that there's not a lot of news because it's just it's not the next in the assembly line yet. Yeah. Well, and speaking of ones that are kind of in the assembly line a little bit further down the road here, we have some Green Lantern news here. Now, this is the Green Lantern core film that's going to be coming. What is it? 2020? 2020. Yeah, yes. 2020. So actually only four years off. <laughs> so only yeah, four, only years, four off. years off. Now, this is highly a rumor, 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 rumor. We need to come up with a sound effect for rumors. It's like rumor. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Rumor. Yeah, with we'll, like lightning, like thunder and lightning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll have to come up with something. But this is a rumor. Take it for what, it, what it's worth. But this comes from Latino Review. Now, Latino Review is actually reporting that they have information that the upcoming film is going to be centered around three of the Earth based Green Lanterns. Now, we know there's like five, right? So, five main ones of recent times. Yes. Uh, and so they're actually saying that the three are going to be Hal Jordan, John Stewart. No big surprise there. Now, the question is who's going to be the third? And now, the third they're actually saying is going to be Kyle Rayner. So, I actually think this is pretty cool because these are three highly popular Green Lanterns, you know, over the last, like, say, 30 years. And so you're, you've got a lot of different fan bases that are going to be, you know, basically serviced here. Now, of course, Guy Gardner is not in this list. And I actually like that idea because I, w- I like the idea that they don't, like, throw everybody at you all at once. I like the idea that they can save one of these characters, Guy Gardner, for a little bit later. And if this film happens to be popular, then you can bring him in a little bit later or maybe in a second film or, or maybe he comes in Justice League. Who knows? But I do like this. So I hope it's true. I, I mean, not because I mean, you've got Hal Jordan being the original. Yeah. You've got John Stewart from the Justice League cartoon, and then you have Kyle Rayner, who was the Green Lantern in For the comics. Yeah. When you know, when a lot of the current movie-going audience was reading comics, right? You right. know, it's like the people who grew up with Wally West as their Flash also grew up with Kyle Rayner as their Green Lantern. Yeah. So, so no, rumor, take it for what it's worth, but it'd be a lot exactly. of fun. I, I, I do hope there is three. I think, I think three would be good. I'd rather have three than two, quite honestly. Yeah. Well, moving. Moving on to some TV news. Yes. Because, you know, I love I love me some TV. Uh, there was an interview with TV Line. Uh, there were two different... There was a guy who wrote the article. I think the one person who did, like, the actual interviews. So it was Matt Webb-Mitovich, who wrote the article, and Vlada Gelman, who did the interviews. But they were talking to the executive producers of Arrow. And this brings up an issue that, once again, I'm going to give a call to our friends Dave and Jason from DC on Screen. They do their weekly recaps of all the DC shows. And they have not been particularly fans of the flashbacks this season. Mm-hmm. And I can't
can't say that I disagree with them. What what have been your thoughts of season four flashbacks, Tim? You know, the season four, they don't interest me. Quite honestly, when it gets to the flashback, you know, part of the episode, I usually kind of like mentally tune out. Of, and I hate to say that because, I mean, I think there was a lot of potential. I, I thought the season one flashbacks were pretty interesting. And, uh, you know, and, and season two as well. But uh, really, season three, I really lost a lot of interest in the flashbacks. And Oh, season three, I did not care about the flashbacks yeah. at all. In yeah. season three. And quite honestly, like even in the first season, even though I, I, I grew to kind of appreciate him, I was I was kind of hopeful that after the first season that they were going to go away from him. And they, they actually didn't. And so now they're kind of like, they feel like they're kind of like, you know, locked in that they have to do five Well, no, seasons. they always planned from the beginning that the, they, that the first five years were going to be flashbacks. Okay, okay. They went in with a plan because they knew that he spent five, well, he supposed to spend five years on the island. He was gone for five years. And so that the first five seasons were always going to be filled with flashbacks. Gotcha. Um, I loved season one and season two flashbacks. Okay. Season one, actually, my my either my number one or my number two, it depends, episode of season one was The Odyssey, which was the one where Oliver was shot. And so almost the entire episode was a flashback. Right. Yeah. And I love that. I love the interaction with Slade Wilson. I loved how it really tied in so well to the present day story, mm-hmm. which is why season three and season four have not not really been that interesting to me because they do not directly relate to the present day story. Yeah, I, I will say this, you know, I mean, I, I am curious to see how he finally kind of ends up how he looked in the, the pilot episode, yes. you know, with the longer hair. I mean, it feels to me like his hair is not long enough yet. <laughs> I know, especially when he's only got what, like a year to grow yeah. it that way. I just kind of felt like it's, I don't know, like they were using wigs in the first and second season and what I don't understand. In the like, third season. Yeah, you're right. Even in third season and for some reason in this season, they must have misplaced his wig. <laughs> no, I think they wanted to get rid of the wig. It could is what be, they wanted be. to do. Yeah, it could be. But at any rate, you know, I mean, he's going to have to get quite long hair here within the next year. And it just kind of felt like, you know, it should have been growing by now. Yeah. Well, Guggenheim basically flat out addressed the fact that fans have not been particularly jazzed about season four flashbacks. Mm-hmm. And he kind of said what I just said, which was that the part of the appeal of the flashbacks in the first two years was seeing the difference between Oliver Queen back then and Arrow, mm-hmm. knowing that Oliver Queen eventually had to become the person that you saw in the first episode. Right. And that as they've gotten closer, they've and he's being less and less different, that th- he admits that they have struggled this year with what to do with the flashbacks because he's becoming too much like the Arrow we see in present day. So there's not that distinction of flashback in present day. Mm. Um, I mean, do you agree? Well, see, I don't know. I'm not sure I entirely agree with that because I don't know that they're supposed to be all that similar right now because if you remember how Arrow was actually in the beginning of the first season, he was actually kind of a vicious killer. And so, I mean, that's a little bit more of a contrast to what his state of mind is right now. So I feel like there's still a little bit of a differential, but I, I guess I could see overall that they're definitely a lot more similar than they were, you know, in the first season. There was definitely a, a much bigger contrast. So I don't know. I would say just at this point, he's got to, what, make it off to Russia? Because at some point he's got he's to meet all these, these Russian mafia guys. And then he's got to learn Russian. So, well, and Wendy Mer- Miracle actually addressed that, 
by saying that, you know, they've experimented with the flashbacks being emotionally or thematically connected instead of directly related to what was going on. Mm -hmm. And I think we can all agree that's not been working out very well for you. (laughs) And that she did hint at season five flashbacks, they feel like are going to be so much stronger because they have the end point. Mm -hmm. And then they're going to work backwards from there. Like, we know by the end of season five, the the last flashback you see in the end of season five has to be the beginning of season one. Okay, yeah. They know that's where they have to get to by the end of season five. And she did say, hinting at season five flashbacks, we don't want to tip off too much, but we do have to explain how we got the Bratva tattoo, and Mm -hmm. he's got to learn how to speak Russian. Okay. So I think, yeah, so we all are like, he's going to Russia. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So anyway, yeah, I mean, I hope they go out a lot stronger with the flashbacks. I want them to be a lot more meaningful than they've felt the last two seasons. But yeah, I'd say put a lot into it and just go out strong with it. So, um, and then hopefully after season five, we don't see any more flashbacks. (laughs) Well, we we can't because, so the question becomes, what do you think they're going to do? Are they going to just, do you think they're going to do some flash forwards? Or do you think they're going to go like just straight present day? Well, I think they just need to go straight present day. Okay. And I I mean, that's what I would do at this point. Besides that, it's got to be rather jarring from a production schedule. This, you know, have to go to different kind of, I don't know, sets or locales, however they're doing this. Yeah. Okay. Well, then let's move on to some Supergirl. No, I have to ask because you tend to be behind. Have you seen the season finale yet? I have not. (laughs) I'm still two episodes behind, but I am working on it this weekend. Okay. Well, I will will speak in vague terms for you. Oh, oh, difficult one. Don't don't hold back for me. That's fine. I'm fine with it. I already know a little bit. Okay. Well, uh, there was an interview with TV line where, you know what? I'm a terrible, I'm a terrible host here. I don't know who said this quote. Mm -hmm. Probably it was Kreisberg, but that's just me guessing. Mm -hmm. He said that we heard very positive things unofficially from Les Moonves, who's the CBS entertainment president, and uh, and that they were very supportive of all their freshman shows getting season two pickups. This, of course, hinting at the fact that we still have not gotten official word that Supergirl has a season two. Right. Grr, <laughs> grr, I want my season two of Supergirl. Yeah. And, and your daughter wants season two of Supergirl. Yes, she does. Yes, she does. Definitely. Does. Well, and then Entertainment Weekly talked about the cliffhanger. I'm warning you, there's a cliffhanger at the end of season two. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, not the end of season two. We haven't had a season two yet. There's a cliffhanger at the end of season one. Just brace yourself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Kreisberg indicated that they know the answer to the question that you're going to have when you watch the season one finale. Yeah. So he said, but it's kind of like saying who shot JR. Right. We know we're just not going to tell you, which is interesting because I almost thought that they didn't. I heard one interview. I think I heard the Supergirl TV talk guys talking about how they heard one interview where they've got ideas of who it is, mm-hmm. but they hadn't decided yet. And yet Kreisberg in this interview was saying, oh, no, we know who it is. I'm just not going to tell you. <laughs> and I'm just like, well, which one is it? Do you know? I think or- it could be either way. <laughs> I really think it's a list of here's who we'd like it to be. Yeah. And we'll just see who we get clearance for. Right, right. I think it'll be something like that. Now, I mean, I do know a little bit about the ending, of course. Uh, spoilers. This is your spoiler yeah. alert. Does this actually end like the movie Seven? You're like, what's in the box? Oh, no, no. It's it, no, no. There is that. You, did you see my meme? Did you see what I put on Twitter? I didn't. What'd you say? Oh, my God. No, I took a snapshot of Brad Pitt from Seven and I put on there. What's in the pod, Kara? What's in the pod? Did you really? Yes. Maybe I must have seen it because I don't know why I use that. So I, I must have seen it then. <laughs> yes, I did that. Because because literally what okay the the, the pod crash lands mm-hmm. Kara goes and, and it looks like a Kryptonian pod mm-hmm. she opens it and she looks in she's like oh my 
and then it's the end of the season. So the funny thing about this, like, who could it possibly be? Because, I mean, how many different characters did we actually see on Krypton? Not that many. No, and who else could? I mean, I don't know. Are they even from Krypton? Do they just happen to have a Kryptonian pod? Because Mm. it's been a while. Krypton's been blown up for a while now. Yeah. Unless this is someone else who was in the Phantom Zone. Hmm. But, I mean, she reacted like it was somebody she knew. Like, she recognized this person. So it would have had to been somebody from when she was, what, 13? 12. 12, yeah. Yeah. It wasn't really, I'm not sure, I, I didn't know if it was recognition on her face or if it was more just kind of a, huh? Yeah. You know, I, I took it more as like shock surprise than any, I don't know. I haven't seen the thing yet, so, but here's my little theory. I'm just going to throw it out there. You're going to throw out a theory without even have seen fan the episode. Theory, fan theory. I think who's in the rocket is her as a little girl. Ooh. Heard it here first, folks. Okay. okay. <laughs> I don't know why. I, I don't. You, you know who I almost thought? Like, I thought almost thought like a multiverse version of her. Okay. Like, okay. Could be. Like Power Girl. Yeah. <laughs> even though they said that maybe Power Girl would actually, you know, possibly Power Girl would be like the, the Earth One Kara. So like you could have Kara right. on like Flash. Yeah. So who knows? So who knows? And then we, you know, it's also been hinted that, you know, Legion of Superheroes was somehow going to show up in it. So it would be kind of cool if maybe it was like, I don't know, someone from the future. Who knows? We'll see. Maybe it's a time bubble, <laughs> but we'll see. But yeah, I, I will actually catch up onto this weekend. So I'll finally get to see it. But yeah, I did know what the ending scene was. <laughs> what's in the pod? Yeah, what's in the pod? Well, actually, we have a little bit of news here. Now, we had talked about this quite a while ago, and there were rumors that there was going to be a DC show on Sci-Fi Network called Krypton. And this was going to be a show that was going to be centered around uh, the events before Man of Steel. In fact, it had even heard that it was going to be tied to the cinematic universe. And so this was going to be set 200 years before, and it was going to be two generations before the destruction of the legendary Man of Steel's home planet. Now, this was actually going to follow Superman's grandfather, whose House of L was ostracized and shamed as he fights to redeem his family's honor and save his beloved world from chaos. So, you know, it's kind of interesting. Is this like one of the top shows that I'd be interested in? Not necessarily, but I do really love like what we saw in Man of Steel. Now, if they were able to kind of recreate that kind of world on a TV budget, you know, I think there's there could be a lot of potential. And and I like the idea that sci-fi is actually getting back into some of the sci-fi type of shows that I think really made him so great for a while. Yeah, is it so sad to say that I really don't care about this show? <laughs> I really I really don't have that much of an interest. I mean, if it wasn't 200 years ago in the past, you know, I would maybe be more interested. There was a really great novel that kind of followed Jor-El and Laura and even Zod called um, Last Days of Krypton by Kevin J. Anderson. If it was a TV show like that, I would be interested. But 200 years ago, where it really is not going to really mean anything or connect, it's it, it feels like Caprica. Did you ever watch that show? I did, I did. Yeah. I was not a fan of that show. Yeah. I loved Battlestar Galactica and really was very apathetic towards Caprica. And this feels like the Caprica of Man of Steel, to yeah. be honest that's with a, you. That's a great analogy because, uh, I mean, Battlestar Galactica was just phenomenal, but Caprica was kind of like, eh. So. Yeah. Um, now, I don't know. So, I mean, any kind of show they can make great. You know, you can make a, a great show. Anybody can make something that's very, uh, you know, very minor and all that. Just make something spectacular. So, you know, I'll remain hopeful that we might get something cool with this. But, uh, you know, I mean, I think it's going to... That was my cat. <laughs> <laughs> Your cat is not hopeful about Krypton. Apparently. 
Yeah, this cat's about ready to get sent to Krypton. So anyway, I mean, so you never know. They could do something quite spectacular with it. So we'll just kind of wait and see, you know. It's just a pilot order at this point, and it may be a pilot that we never see. <laughs> so Well, I, before we wrap up, I wanted to throw out one little piece of news. I just found it today on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Turns out it was, came out yesterday. But the DC Comics Twitter feed posted this tweet. An Earth 2 favorite makes their Funko debut in this month's DC TV box order by May 1st. This, of course, is referring to the Legion of Collectors subscription mystery box, Mm -hmm. you know, sponsored by Funko. And the picture that they put on the Twitter feed (laughs) is Jay Garrick's helmet. Nice, nice, nice. So we're getting a DC TV flash TV show, Jay Garrick pop. That would be cool. That is so awesome. That would be cool. Did you ever think you were going to see a Funko Jay Garrick? (laughs) No, 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 I didn't. And the the design they have on the TV show, that's a pretty cool design that I'm looking forward to having a Funko of. Yeah, definitely be cool. So, yeah, and we should, that's shipping out actually, what, May 1st, right? Well, just like the deadline is May 1st and they always say like they start shipping out like that week. Because May 1st is like a Sunday. So the second's a Monday and they'll probably start shipping on that Monday because that's when they send out the Batman v Superman boxes. Got it. Okay. Well, hey, I'll tell you what, that is it for this week's podcast. And uh, let's go ahead and end it here. And I just want to go ahead and thank you guys so much for listening. And as usual, we hope you really enjoyed our discussion and the show. Yeah, it's been lots of fun. And once again, we'd love to hear from you guys. So let us know if there's any news that you would like us to touch on or if there's something you'd like us to talk about. Because there was a lot of news in this episode that if you guys hadn't tweeted me mm-hmm. um, or tweeted the show, I would, wouldn't have caught it as quickly as we did. So thank yeah. you. That's all for you. So Tim, where can the people find us to share this wonderful stuff with us? Yeah, the quickest way is, you know, through Twitter. Twitter is the most efficient way for us to kind of, you know, on our limited time schedule to kind of communicate with you guys. So reach out to us at Suicide Squadcast. And if you want to reach me individually, you can reach me at Alan Fire. And Scott, how can they reach you? You can, of course, follow me at ScottDC27 on Twitter. And you can also email the show, SuicideSquadcast at gmail.com. We do answer all tweets and emails from fans of the show. And I want to give a giant shout out to my co-host for actually plowing through all those emails. You are a better man than I, sir. Well, I salute you. Well, I finally got caught up and and quite honestly, there was a ton of great, great emails and I really wanted to give them like, a you know, all due respect and, and give a good response back. And I finally got some time where I can sit down and do it. So anyway, apologize for taking so long, but, uh, you know, thanks again for writing us. And like I said, we do eventually answer everybody. <laughs> eventually <laughs> being the keyword there. So we've got iTunes reviews. Yay. It's been a while. Um, I want to start off with this great iTunes review from China. Mm-hmm. It's titled, Your Comments Have Done BVS Justice, No Pun Intended, <laughs> by Fourth Time It Is. Yeah. This reviewer says, Just finished my third time watching BVS, and I listened to your podcast 33 on my way home. As soon as I heard some of your comments, I decided I'm going to watch this movie for the fourth time. And I don't think it would be too much, because even after all these times, I can still be surprised by listening to some of the comments and go, well, I never think of that. And it actually make a lot of sense. I love the comments about the Eisenberg's version of Lex and how Ben's version of Batman is a damaged one and just how fast this two hours and over movie can go, especially about all the negative critics about this movie. I was really shocked and upset about the Rotten Tomatoes rate. It's just so not fair to a point it's almost like the critics think there's something right about saying negative things. At least it felt like that for me, especially when this one really did an awesome job, at least for me. You guys mentioned that it gives the audiences a really different version of superhero movies 
And if they cannot be given credit for that, at least they shouldn't be receiving negative comments saying it's too dark or whatever. I'm being repetitive. So in general, thank you for sharing your perspectives and all those things that I didn't think of. Guess I will see you in the next podcast. And English is not my first language, so there must be many typo and grammar errors. Sorry about that. It's okay fourth time it is. That was very well done. And I got to be honest with you. I'm actually actually kind of jealous here because fourth time it is actually uses better English than I do. (laughs) Fourth time it uses better English than some of my students do. So you know what? Go fourth time it is. You're doing just fine. You're doing just great. So you're doing just great. So actually, that's our second review from China. So um, you are now eligible for this next contest. Now, the second one that we got here to read is from Top Dog 6991, who is actually from the UK. And Top Dog says, excellent for DCEU. And he goes on to say, I've recently discovered this podcast in the last few weeks when I was looking for stuff about BVS. And I've listened to so many now. Pass the time at work excellently. My subscription is now in place. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. We got one more. Yes, we do. And this one is from the US store. And this is Love This Podcast by JMDM72193. I love this podcast. It's great to have a DC-related show with co-hosts who are simultaneously optimistic and objective. I highly recommend it to anyone interested in the DCEU. Well, thank you, JMDM bunch of numbers. Yeah, very good. So, Scott, that actually leaves us just six away from our next giveaway. I know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, guys, if you think we deserve it, leave us a five-star written review on the iTunes store, and you will be entered into this contest. You have a one in ten chance of winning a DC Comics trade paperback. And even if you don't think we deserve it, and you just want the trade paperback, go right ahead. I I don't care. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, you can get a trade paperback, $15 or less. So, we've actually given away how many now? So, we've given away... Eight. Eight, right? Yes, we have. No, seven. It is eight. Yeah. Yes, this is contest number nine. This is contest number nine. Oh, okay, we haven't given away eight trade paperbacks, but we have we've had eight contest winners. Oh, okay, very good, very good. So, like I said, we're fans uh, wanting to do this for the fans, and we just want to have a little fun. We love DC, and we want to pass on some of the goodness. So, guys, this is it for this week's show. And first of all, we want to thank everyone once again, and and most of all, with the sad news we got this week, we want to thank Prince for all the great years of music that he gave us. He is now gone, but definitely not forgotten. So, we will see you guys next week. See you guys later. something my friend you ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight this town needs an enema where does he get all those wonderful toys what kind of a world do we live in when a man dressed up like a bat gets all my press i'm only laughing on the outside my smile is just skin deep if you could see inside i'm really crying you might join me for a week hubba 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 who do you trust who do you trust me i'm giving away free money (laughs) i think we need to know that one (laughs) 